This episode contains a lot of explicit content, honest conversations and personal experiences that may set off triggers of your own. Hey guys and welcome to episode one of Potty Mouth, the podcast full of honesty, confessions and a lot of fucking swearing. Okay, so first of all, guys, um, I wanted to just say thanks for listening. This episode, I think it's going to be a belter. I thought we'd start off with something to grip our teeth into, something deep, something personal. Um, I don't really want to guide you in lightly. I want to hit you with the hard stuff first. Um, It's going to be all about mental health this episode. So we are going to have some emotional conversations, some honesty and some brutal opinions as well. But it's not just myself on this one. Um, I've got a special guest joining me. Her name's Beck. She's a dark horse. Definitely one to watch when she's had a couple of drinks. She has had a lot of life experiences and a lot of experience with mental health. She has got a bit of a potty mouth as well. And she is a very good friend of mine. So, yeah. Hi, Beck. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Yourself? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. No worries. Thank you for, um, first of all, coming on and being willing to, I suppose, share your story. When did it start for you? When did you first I suppose either see signs or get diagnosed or if someone else saw signs uh it started at a really young age I was eight years old um and I started to pinch my skin until I bled so it was a form of self-harm but I didn't realize it at the time I was young we didn't have a home computer at the time so I didn't know about this concept of self-harm or self-mutilation but I had quite an unsteady uh home life both my parents are alcoholics even as a child I felt very out of control and so when I would hurt myself I'd feel a lot better so that started at at eight years old and my mum noticed but she thought it was just a habit she didn't think oh she's she's fine but obviously my mum was an alcoholic she wasn't she wasn't completely aware of what was going on around her so I think she just sort of shoved it aside and I I didn't realize so I just sort of carried on with with life um I did have quite bad um even at eight not anger issues but I would have really bad emotional outbursts that would just last and last and last I could not calm myself down so I think that was another symptom but it wasn't until I was actually 12 years old that I thought to myself hang on something something's completely wrong here I don't think I'm quite right and um so I went to my mum and I went can I have a doctor's appointment but I didn't actually tell her what it was for and she goes yeah yeah I'll make up you on Monday but then two hours later I chickened out and I was like you know what I don't want a doctor's appointment but through this time the self-harm was progressive getting worse so I was doing different types of self-harm so I was still pinching myself um I was chewing on the inside of my mouth so my mouth was covered in lots of little sores pulling out my hair and then it had progressed to actually cutting myself uh, oh, wow. with, a, with a razor so it progressively gotten worse and I knew that something was wrong but I was so scared I think because well to go back a little bit a year before that I'd just been taken into care so I thought if, if I say this they're going to take me away and yeah. I was so afraid of being taken away from my mum again only just really gotten back to, to be to living with her um that I sort of went no actually I can't do this so I sort of just kept it inside and my mom didn't know about the cutting she knew about the pinching that it got yeah. worse um but she'd see blood on my school shirts and things like that little dots of blood continuously on my school shirts um but because I cut my lower arms that wasn't on my school shirts because I had short sleeves and she never thought to say oh actually can can I can I see your arms because yeah. it was something I I hid quite well because it was, I I would say I was ashamed of it and again, we still didn't have a home computer. I still didn't really understand this concept of self-harm and self-mutilation and exactly why I was doing it. But I think looking back, I can say I was so out. I felt really out of control. I was angry. I was guilty about everything that had happened in childhood. Um, 
through my my dad and my mum's alcoholism I thought that was my fault and that all the events were, were my fault and I was sort of taking that out on myself but also I didn't realize that at 12 years old at 12 years old I was yeah it's a bit young out. I suppose and it wasn't until I was 14 that the cutting had got so bad that I just couldn't hide it anymore and um I was seen by the camps team quite quickly and I was diagnosed with clinical depression. Um, and my mum actually, actually pushed for that diagnosis because they didn't want to diagnose me. They just, they saw this this suicidal, because the, the suicidal thoughts had started and they thought, is she going to do something? Um, and my mum pushed for diagnosis. She also pushed to put me on medication. But at 14, I was put on fluoxetine, which did at the time help um somewhat um and I remember when I initially got diagnosed I literally just had no reaction it was like oh you've got depression oh okay thank you (laughs) I just didn't react it's I think I was having issues with dissociating from myself and I just don't think I put two and two together that it was me getting the diagnosis or me sat in the chair being lectured about cutting myself and are you going to kill yourself how would you kill yourself what would you do all these questions you and I remember for the first year and a half I was with Cam so until I was about 15 and a half I never said an actual word to the therapist or the psychiatrist I would look at my mum and she would talk for me and then and then they go is that right Rebecca and I'd of my head before I would tell my mum okay this is what's going on this is what I want you to say and then she'd go and say it and then but that's the only time I'd open up to her as well because although because during when we were 14 15 that's when her alcoholism got worse and she was really struggling with depression as well and I still felt that guilt I felt well she's because she did stop drinking for about two years and she started again and I thought well that was when I started to play up more and I just didn't want to put it on her and again I was I was ashamed but I think it got to about 16 and you'd go into PE and you weren't allowed to you would only allowed to wear like your 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 t-shirt and your shorts yeah for me wearing those they would clearly highlight the cuts on my arms cuts on my legs and I think about 16 I turned around and went I don't actually care anymore so I'd just walk into the PE hall with all my cuts on display I just didn't care anymore it was I don't I look back and I'm like why the hell did you why did you do that that's an awful <laughs> thing to do and people looked at me and I just did not care I did not give a shit what they thought of me I walked in there just covered in I must have because it was there was loads there must have been like about 100 all over my body I just walked in and you see the teachers looking at you and they're like oh I'm gonna get a phone mom's gonna get a phone call about this one yeah wow and I think that's when I was just like you know what I don't care anymore and it was only in PE in actual school I even in the summer I wore um a long sleeve t-shirt a jumper a blazer and I used to wear gloves on my hands because this got the cuts had progressed to my hands as well but even in the height of summer I was like fully covered except in PE I was like I don't give a shit anymore and I think eventually they did actually sign me off of PE (laughs) if yeah. I remember correctly so I was like oh this is good this is good for me I hate you so when I was so on when I was 16 I'd been on broxetine for about two years and I went to my GP because again the self-harm had gotten worse suicidal thoughts have gotten out of control I was attacking my brother with really bad anger issues um so I saw my GP and she upped my fluoxetine now the issue was this is it not only made me mentally very unwell it also made me physically very unwell. So um, I was extremely confused all the time. No idea what was going on around me. I, looking back, I barely remember that period when they upped my medication. Uh, eventually, they took me off of fluoxetine. They were like, hang on a minute, something's going wrong here. Um, and that's when they put me on sertraline, which I'm actually still on today. So I got put on that when I was 16. So I've been on sertraline for about 10 years um, for the depression. Um, and then during this time, I kept going back to camp and saying, I think there's something more wrong with me. I don't think it's just depression because I was having these symptoms of really bad mood swings, not just, you know, teenage mood swings. It was one minute I was manic and the next minute I was so low that I could probably have jumped off a bridge. Um, yeah. 
I had impulsive behaviours, really bad angry outbursts. I was I started having quite um, violent panic attacks. So I thought in my mind, I've got bipolar disorder because that's the only thing I could think of. That's the only thing I could think of to explain these symptoms. But because I kept pushing it, because I kept saying to them, look, there's something else wrong with me. It's, it's not just depression at this point. It's something else. And they were like, no, no, you don't have bipolar. So bipolar. But all along, I was like, there's something else wrong with me. And I know there is, but I can't get any help. So the thing with CAMS is that it's a, ch- it's a children's service. So as soon as I turned 18, I was discharged and I was sort of left with nothing. So I I did get um, referred to the adult services, which I would like to say were, they're really shit. <laughs> yeah. They're so bad. I never got to see a psychiatrist. I got referred for, um, I can't remember what it's called now, behavioural therapy. Okay. But I don't think I finished the course because I didn't like the woman doing it because she was really she was really judgy so when I'd say stuff like oh yeah I self-harm and she goes well just don't self-harm and I went oh yeah it's really that that easy isn't it exactly exactly it's not just but she didn't didn't say how to stop it and I'm just like you're great so I think I just discharged myself I'm like you know I'm not doing this anymore and then I had the great idea that it would be fantastic to move 100 miles away from home (laughs) and go to university (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I thought it was brilliant. My mum's like she'll be back in my mum generally thought I'd be back in about two weeks and not in a in a in a, in an ambulance. Well, think of it section. this way. If you didn't go to university, you wouldn't have met me and then you wouldn't I know. have been doing this podcast, <laughs> would you? I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Um there was there's a couple of incidents. Well, there's one in particular when I was about seventeen. Um I can't remember why, but I was upstairs. I was in my room and I was self-harming. My brother walked in and caught me self-harming. Now, he completely lost his shit, obviously. It's very upsetting to see someone you love doing that. So he threw an ornament at me and I just, I just remember screaming and then it was pouring of rain outside and I was in socks. And I remember running out the door and my neighbour poked her head out because obviously she'd heard me absolutely scream, my brother screaming at me and me just screaming at the top of my lungs. She goes, Becca, you're right. And I just ran down the road just in socks and in this heavy rain. I didn't know where I was going. And I, I just ran. I didn't even run that far because I'm quite unfit. <laughs> so I, I didn't run that far. And um, I sat under a tree and I'm like, what am I going to do? And generally I was like, okay, how how can I kill myself? I was like, and the cars were going past. Okay, do I jump in front of a car? Do I go to that bridge? Or do I jump off that bridge nearby? Do I jump, Do I go down the hill and jump in the canal? And and I'm sat there sort of contemplating. I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. This is the end. I'm not, I'm not doing it. And my brother comes and he comes and gets me. And he literally like manhandles me back to the house. Like, I think he put his arm around my shoulders and he's like pulling me down the road. And I'm screaming all this time as he's pulling me down the road. And he gets me back in the house and he locks the door and he hides all the keys. And they basically just let me sit in that house until I calm down, which is which is a tactic they still use to this day. If, if my family, but no, genuinely, if they think I'm going to harm myself because I have a tendency, you know, you have the fight or yeah. flight. I tend to flight and I tend to leg it as fast as I can, which isn't very fast. <laughs> but I will leave. <laughs> I will leave the house yeah. and I will probably... And I'll do things like I'll walk into the road without looking. I will probably, you don't know, I might get into some stranger's car. I might do any any one of these things. So to this day, they will still lock the doors, hide the keys, and basically let me just go around the house until I calm down. I suppose that's a, if if that works. I think I think it does. I in mean, a way. guys, if you're listening to this, I wouldn't recommend it. However, <laughs> if that works, and then it's. It's safer for you if that's, it works, I suppose. That yeah, that's that's genuinely how my family dealt with me. Um, my mum's like held me in my room before. It's just keeping me, making sure I can't run, do something impulsive, yeah, like jump off a bridge or whatever. 
and um, until I calm down, which I will eventually calm down. It's not because of the swinging moods. I will quickly, not quickly, but in a couple of hours, it'll be like nothing yeah. ever happened because of the mood swing. So, yeah, going back, I went to university at 18, obviously found it very difficult, ended up at the hospital, ended up at the GPs, frequent, I was a frequent flyer uh, with the crisis yeah. team. Um, so I quite quickly got in to see a psychiatrist and she we had the assessment I'm like and I said to her again I think it's bipolar disorder because of these swinging swinging moods and she's like okay and she gets up and she leaves she just walks out the room she comes back about 15 minutes later and she goes you have a personality disorder bye and at this point I never heard of personality disorder didn't know what it was um and of course, I Google it, and there's like eight different types. I can't remember exactly. The worst thing you can do, Google Different it. types, different. Uh, but she didn't tell yeah. me which one it was. She didn't tell me what it was. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to look it up now. What the hell's a personality disorder? She's saying there's something wrong with my personality. <laughs> like, <laughs> and so I did a Google, and I was like, there's like eight different personality disorders which one have I got and I basically got into bending and get out for a week because I genuinely thought there was something wrong with my personality I was like well this is it I'm not getting out of bed I didn't go to lectures just didn't get out of bed um because I was so devastated and I think it was so poorly managed that she didn't take the time to sit down and go this is what it means to have a personality disorder and now I'm now obviously I'm I've that was at 18 I'm now 20 well 26 next week so I've gone mass eight years eight. I've been have had the diagnosis yeah. for eight years. I obviously know what that means. So it means being another. So I have borderline personality disorder, or another name for it is emotionally unstable personality disorder, which I think uh, sort of explains it better. I'm emotionally unstable. I swing between moods. It's my. It's like my everyday life. I go from high to low to angry to sad at the swing of a hat. And that's just sort of the way I live. It also means being quite unstable in relationship, um, unstable in how you see the world. You have very black and white thinking. So in terms of people I know, I either hate you or I love you. There's no in between. You're, you're never an acquaintance. You're either, I hate, I hate them guts like you never come near me or I love you, please never leave me. Yeah. Kind of thing. And that's just very quick synopsis. Obviously, borderline personality disorder is quite a complex disorder. So that's just a really, really quick run down of some of the some, some of the top top things but um people with borderline personality disorder are more likely to commit suicide because they have quite impulsive strong emotions um they're more likely to self-harm and they're more likely to do risky behaviors yeah um because you don't think about it you just do it so um i sort of went along university kept getting put on on more and more medication I was put on a mood stabiliser to sort of try and balance my moods. Um, I was. I also have insomnia, which I can't say the word properly. So I do insomnia. I think it's. Is that right? Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I. I to still to this day I don't really sleep. So I was put on a medication for that and anxiety, and they just kept sort of upping the doses, upping the doses, upping the doses. Kept ending up in the crisis team because. I don't know I just kept I think also when you live with other people your age who perhaps don't have any experience in mental health their first instinct is to get you to A&E and they're just like no you need to go to A&E you need to go now whereas at home my mum my brother would probably deal with it so it's like so when I lived in Watford I, I don't think I ever ended up in hospital I always dealt with it myself um not advised but when my cuts were too deep I used to sellotape them together so I wouldn't have to go get stitches wow don't do that really really yeah, guys, really don't, don't do, that, do that it leaves a really nasty scar really nasty scar don't recommend it but because I was so fearful of hospitals and then as soon as I went to uni I, I seemed to spend most of my time in hospitals it was it was really bizarre I suppose and you I remember... didn't really have a choice though did you if you wasn't with uh, your mom or your brother or yeah yeah and you was with a group of people that in theory you didn't really know no I think the no. first instinct would probably be to just go to A&E or go and see a GP exactly and the majority of the time that A&E would just send me send me on my way they would generally check my physical health because um having quite violent panic attacks or things like that can damage I don't know if it damages you always have my heart checked and my lungs checked yeah um and they talk to someone they go okay you're fine okay bye which was how it usually end up but there was a couple of points at uni where I thought 
this is rock bottom and I think the one that really stands out for me and I think it was second year I was at one of the less hostels it wasn't the royal it was one the one furthest away Anfield I went there yeah went there by bus had a crisis appointment and I ended up having an argument with her because I was I was a little bit resistive to care because I was in such a bad way that I was just she's just like do you want to be seen by the crisis team so I want to come see you every day no I'm not doing that do you want to be admitted no I'm not doing that (laughs) So I ended up did I ended up end up having an argument with this woman because she stood she sat there like I don't know what I can do to help you. Do you want to be admitted? Do you want to see the crisis team? Do you want to just be let go? And I was like, just let me go. So she did let me walk out. Probably she didn't think I was that much of a risk if she let me walk out. I don't really know, but I had um, a load of diazepam on me, so I took all the diazepam I had and I collapsed onto the grass um, by like a helicopter. I remember, I remember it's like by the helicopter pad and I sort of laid there for a little while and I remember the grass, it just been raining, the grass was soaking wet but I was, I was so just out of my head on what I'd just taken that I just led there and I sort of like, okay, I need to do something. Well, I'm at uni, no one has a car, no one can come get me. I'm sort of, what am I going to do? So I literally rang my mum. <laughs> my mum's 100 miles away. My mum was disabled at this point, doesn't drive. Um... And I rang her and I said, Mum, I've just taken a load of drugs and I'm led on the floor of the hospital. <laughs> and I'm laughing because it's so, not embarrassing, but it's so, I can't believe that was actually me. I think if and, you don't laugh at it, you'll probably cry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she's like, what did you do? And I was like, I took a load of diazepam. And I was like, oh my God, no. How much did you take? So I don't know. I just took a handful. Like I took whatever I had on me. Like I took the whole prescription. She's like, oh God. She's taking a whole prescription of diazepam. And she had to slowly talk me out of just lying there because I wanted to literally lie there and die. I'm like, I'm not moving. I've taken a load of drugs. I'm going to die. Just leave me alone to die. But I just wanted to call you, tell you I love you, but don't leave me. Because obviously the dependency... Um, aspects of the borderline personality disorder you're like oh and she had to persuade me to sort of get on my feet once and then walk to the bus stop get on a bus <laughs> and get back to my flat and to this day I have no idea how I did it and I think it might have taken hours but I've, I did eventually make it home and uh, I just went to sleep and obviously I woke up again so I remember um, the day after that happened I remember you? getting a text message off of you saying that Something to do with you was, did you have to speak to the crisis team afterwards or something? Um, yeah. Did you have someone yeah. coming out to monitor your medication or monitor you taking your medication because of that incident? Yeah. I remember you crying yeah, I to believe me on the phone. Yeah. 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 I can remember that. And I remember you telling me and I was like, Beck, why? Why did you do that? Why did you just ring me? Because it was... it, I, I, I get it. I get that. I suppose in the moments, it like you say, it's an impulse. You don't really yeah. think about it. You just do it. You think, yeah. oh, I've got all these tablets in my pocket. I'm going to take them. So you take them. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I, I remember thought it would make it, me feel better. Yeah. And I remember seeing you, yeah, I think a couple of days after, because I know you were kind of on bed rest for a couple of days afterwards. Yeah. But I remember seeing yeah. you afterwards. And I suppose I, I was really angry with you mm. because yeah. I don't know. I was just angry with you because you'd done that when, Mm. and I know you couldn't help it because it was just kind of an impulse and we all do stuff like that. We all have impulses and we all maybe feel, maybe feel that way where you don't think it's going to get any better and you kind of hit rock bottom. Mm. Um, You kind of have them impulses and thank God that you rang your mum and you spoke to your mum and your mum kind of got you out of that Mm. rut, I suppose. And thank God you made it home. And thank God you woke up the following morning. I know. <laughs> didn't I didn't even think I don't I don't I just I think I just said to mum, look, I'm going to sleep. Obviously diazepam makes you very sleepy. I'm just like I'm going I'm gonna go to sleep. And I think she I believe she made me put her on Skype and I fell asleep with her on Skype so she could keep an eye on me. I oh, believe yeah. Her. I know. But that must have been awful for her, your daughter. No way of getting to her. Yeah. I think that was probably one of the lowest points. I remember, I remember your mum messaging me a couple of times um, mm. on Facebook. Not I never spoke to her in person or on the <laughs> phone or anything, but I yeah. had her on Facebook because I'd obviously been with you to the hospital a couple of times when you'd had yes. 
yeah. yeah, episodes or if you'd self-harmed or anything. I remember. Yeah. I remember running out of a lecture and you were crying to me on the phone. And we was in, I think it was practical journalism. Oh, and you yeah. hadn't turned up. Mm-hmm. And Brian was teaching us and I remember you ringing me crying on the phone and I just ran out of the uh, ran yeah. out of the room and he didn't even follow me I think he knew he knew where I was going or he knew that you needed me and I remember sitting in that hospital for hours yeah for hours and I remember I remember ordering a Domino's to the mental we met health that, unit we, we met that girl and her dad and her dad paid for our pizza yeah yeah, I remember sitting in the sitting yeah. in the mental health unit bit because they didn't know what they was going to do, did they? They didn't know if they no. was going to let you go home if they wanted to keep you in or if they were going to section you. They didn't yeah. kind of know what they was going to do. So I remember kind of mm-hmm. having your mum on one end of the phone mm-hmm. and yep. then Domino's on the other end of the phone. <laughs> And sat eating as Domino's pizza in the mental health unit. And then I remember, yeah. thank God, they let you home. Um, I remember, yeah. I, I, I don't know, 3am or something. I remember ring, ringing time. Richard because I didn't want to, I didn't want you to walk home on your own. I rang Richard and I remember he came and met us at the hospital and we both walked you home. And then yeah. we walked home and I was... I remember having my phone on loud all night just mm. in case you needed me. And then yeah. I remember that from that day on, your mum messaged me all the time. How's Rebecca? She says she's okay. But I just thought I'd message you to see if she's lying yeah. or not. That's true, friend- that's true friendship. It at the hospital at 3am. At 3am. <laughs> I could have been at in home the mental health unit. <laughs> could have been watching the character. But I wasn't. I was there to support you because... Yeah. I promise your mum, I promise your mum that I'd support you. And I was going through all of my own mental issues at that time. So I kind of knew what you was going through. Mine Mm. were not like, um, mine was just depression and anxiety. It wasn't like um, personality disorder or anything like that. And I didn't self-harm. I thought about it many Mm. a times, but I didn't have the balls to do it. Mm. honestly I didn't have the balls I wouldn't even know where to start I used to sit and read about it and I used to read that well you've got to be careful because if you do it a certain way and then you could hit the main artery so you've got to do it another way and if you do it with this object or do it with that object yeah it'd be easier and it'd make a deeper cut or it wouldn't make a noticeable cut I remember reading all about it um but I just didn't have the bollocks Mm. I didn't have the bollocks to do shit like that um but yeah so I kind of knew so when your mum asked if I could not necessarily keep an eye on you yeah but support you Mm. I suppose I didn't feel obliged because you were Mm. one of my best friends at uni anyway Mm. so I didn't feel obliged to do it but that's what friends do I know friends are there for each other definitely through a lot of people walked away from me and I don't Looking back, I don't blame them because I was completely. Who wants to deal with that? You're you're in uni. You're trying to get a degree. You're nineteen, twenty, and you've got someone completely. You don't know what they're going to do next. Completely out, of, not out of control, but yeah, out of control. You kind of and someone who's so unpredictable as I was back then. I was yeah. so unpredictable. You wouldn't know what I was going to do next, and a lot of people did walk away and. You never did. I was, uh, I'm yeah. not going to cry. But no, I was don't cry, don't cry. so grateful <laughs> that you stood by me, even Still, when... And I yeah. know that I'm at one end of the country. I'm a northern lass. And yeah. you're, a, you're a southerner. Yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll, leave that, we'll leave that one there. We'll leave that uh, <laughs> north-south divide there. Well, um, yeah. But, I mean, if less is 100 miles away... Sheffield must be. It's a foot two hundred. Yeah, hundred and eighty, two hundred miles away. Something like that. Yeah. Still, I'd be at the other end of the phone if you needed me. Yeah, I'd definitely be at the other end of the phone if you needed me. Um, even if I was having a rough day, I remember when I got diagnosed. I got diagnosed when I was twenty. Suffered for years before that. 
in silence, didn't really tell anyone, didn't really tell any friends. I was probably around 14 when I started noticing that I didn't feel right, something was a matter, but I just kind of hid it, I kept it to myself. I had a load of stuff going on at home, I didn't really want to deal with it then. Uh, so yeah, I remember waking up and my boyfriend at the time, he basically told me that he was taking me to the doctor's. And I just remember being absolutely petrified. I was petrified to go and tell the doctor. I was petrified to have to admit that I was ill, that something was wrong with me. There was a lot of stigma around mental health back then. I mean, there still is now, but there was a lot more back then. I didn't want to admit that I was fucked in the head. I didn't want to admit to this boy, especially, that... I had only been dating for a few months that I was wappy that something was wrong with me. I mean, I thought that he would run. I thought, oh my God, if I admit that I am depressed or anxious or anything, that he is just going to give up on me and then I'll have no one here. But I did. I had friends. I had my family at home. I had friends at home. But in that kind of frame of mind, I really clung on to him. So yeah, he took me to the doctors and he sat in the waiting room, squeezing my hand and he sat with me through the entire appointment, holding my hand. And I was dreading, dreading for the doctor to turn around and say that I was depressed and that I had depression. But then there was like, well, we can refer you for therapy and we can refer you. They were really good. They really helped me pinpoint my triggers and pinpoint my coping mechanisms and stuff. And then I got put on some sertraline and I was dubious. I was dubious at first. I kept it to myself. There was only really me and Richard that knew. It was hard. It was really hard. But I managed to get through it. That wasn't kind of the word, the lowest I've been. I've been a lot lower than that. I kind of hit rock bottom. This was probably about a month before I went to the doctors and spoke to somebody about it. Richard was at work. Richard's parents, who I was living with at the time, they were at work as well. And his sister was at work. She lived at home. And um, I was in the house on my own, which was very rare. It was very rare that I was on my own in that house. There was usually always someone there, which is why I started staying there more because I felt rubbish. So Richard wanted me to be around people so that I wasn't on my own all the time. Um, living in a student flat, you kind of come and go. You don't really know what's happening. So I remember waking up and I felt shit honestly I felt absolutely horrendous I remember waking up and I got up and I got dressed I mean I'd been in bed for about five hours I didn't really want to do anything I skipped uni skipped uni multiple times um like within the first couple of months of me di being diagnosed and just before being diagnosed I even wrote the letter to uh, my lecturer saying that I wanted to quit uni because of how stressed and how depressed I was. So yeah, I got up, I got dressed, I got my phone and my keys and I just left the house. And I just started walking and I just kept walking and walking. Didn't really know where I was going, didn't really know where I was. It was a part of Leicester that I um, didn't really know. So I just carried on walking and I walked down this massive road Um and I just carried on and carried on. I was probably walking for about an hour um, and then I started getting a little bit tired so I thought, oh, I'll just, I'll just sit down in this bus stop. So I sat in the bus stop and there was all sorts going on in my head. I was thinking about not making my family proud, being a rubbish girlfriend because me and Richard were arguing all the time because he was trying to help. He was trying to get me to go and speak to someone or go and speak to a doctor or even speak to my mum or dad. It was trying to help me, and I know that, but we were arguing all the time. I was just thinking loads of stuff like, well, I can't do this anymore. I can't be here. I just can't live feeling the way I feel. I don't want to be here. I don't want to disappoint anyone anymore. I, 
I want people to be proud of me and I'm a failure. I'm failing at everything. I'm failing at uni. I'm failing at being a girlfriend, a daughter, a sister, a friend. I just, I just wanted to end it, to be truthful with you. I just didn't want to be here. And I remember I kind of zoned out at that point. I just zoned out and everything was a bit of a blur but I remember I looked down the road and I saw this bus in the distance and I stepped off the curb and as the bus got closer I carried on walking into the middle of the road now there was not really any other cars around um, there's a couple parked up but there wasn't really any other cars around so I just carried on walking into the middle of the road and the bus started coming and it started to get closer and closer and you could see the bus driver waving his hands um like telling me to move like from a distance you could see him waving his hands and then I remember my phone vibrated in my pocket and I kind of looked up saw that the bus wasn't that close so I quickly took my phone out of my pocket and on my wallpaper was a picture of me and my brother and I just zoned back in again and I thought what the fuck are you doing what the fuck are you doing Leah like get out of the road you can't do this, you'll regret it, you can't end your life, and I just remember thinking, like, looking at that picture of me and my brother, and thinking, he needs me, he needs his big sister, like, yeah, he's got my mum and he's got my dad, but he needs his big sister, he needs me around, I can't do that, I can't leave him, I can't, I can't leave my mum, I can't leave my dad, I, I can't leave Richard, so I quickly jumped back onto the curb and I just remember I like fell to the floor in the bus stop and I just burst out crying and I was shaking. I started kind of hyperventilating so I was starting to have a panic attack. I managed to get myself out of the panic attack um, and then I just got up and I ran and I, I mean I don't run. But this time I ran, I just wanted to get home. I needed to see Richard. I needed to be at home. I needed to go to bed. I needed to get some water. I just needed to be home somewhere where I was safe, where I couldn't do anything stupid. And I think if it wasn't for me, um, it was a Snapchat notification, but if it wasn't for my phone vibrating and for me pulling out my phone and seeing my little brother's picture on my phone, bearing in mind he was probably about 10 at this point. Um, so if I didn't have seen that, and then who knows what would have happened? Who knows if I'd have kind of zoned back in in time or not? I mean, we don't know. But that was kind of a massive reality check for me. And that's when I kind of started realising that, yeah, Leah, come on, something is wrong. Something is a matter with you. I was still in denial. I didn't want to be honest with anyone. I never told anyone. I told people that I'd hit rock bottom, but they didn't kind of know how rock bottom I probably was at that point in time. So when Richard woke me up that morning and said, look, I've made an appointment for you at the doctor's. You go in and I'm taking you and I'm coming with you. and I'm not taking no for an answer. Um, I just kind of let him take control and take me to the doctors because I couldn't, I couldn't go through that again. I, I couldn't do that to my family. I couldn't do that to my friends. But when you're in that frame of mind, you don't really, you don't really think about what you're doing. I got put on, like I say, sertraline. That was fine for a couple of years. Left uni, moved back um up to near my hometown. So now live in Sheffield. Richard came with me we had a little uh, a daughter uh, we got married so I had to come off of my 250 milligram of sertraline because I fell pregnant um and then I kind of just went cold turkey and then it, I was all right then I didn't go back on them um I was being kept a very close eye on for postnatal and postpartum but I was fine thank god and then the pandemic hit so then I went on tablets um again I got put on fluoxetine but they started sending me wappier than I am already. Um, so then I got put on citralopram and that's what I'm on now. I'm on a high dose, but it works. This seems to be working, which is great. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's all a bit of a roller coaster, and I never want to be back in that um, place that I was before. I never want to go back to rock bottom. So I tried to do everything possible to not get there. So yeah, I think it's hard when you leave uni and you, you leave kind of that, 
that routine that you are in, how did your mental health change when you left uni back? I came home from uni. I moved back home for, for a number of reasons. I think I needed to move back home for my mental health because I was like, you know what, I need my mum. <laughs> I was 21 years old, yeah. I was like, you know what, I need my mum, I need to go home. Moving my care from Leicester, I, at Leicester I actually received really good mental health care. They had a dedicated personality to send, uh, disorder centre, which specifically just treated the disorder. Um, I saw a psychiatrist once every two months. And I came back here and it took four years. I only recently got in to see a professional, four years to see someone. You have to remember, I'm on big doses of antipsychotics. I'm on big doses of mood stabilizers. I was on the highest dose of a dep- antidepressant, uh, another highest dose of another antidepressant, um, and I was on one more medication as well. And they were making me physically unwell. So I don't know if you remember, or you know now, I became intolerant to those foods. That food started making me unwell. Yes. So. And it was because I was taking I was taking a medication to sort of protect my stomach lining, protect my stomach, but it didn't do a good enough job. So I was physically getting unwell from these medications. I was living, I was literally living life like I was I was asleep. It was awful. And for four years, I had to live like that because the GP couldn't touch my medication. I kept getting referred to the mental health services, and they just said, well, "We can't do anything for you." That's the issue. I go back to my GP. My GP couldn't do anything because I'm on these doses of medications. She she doesn't have the expertise to touch them, to change them, to take me off them, to change different ones. And it wasn't until I tried again a couple of months later and my area had just come up with a new mental health service. And I literally got in straight away. I spoke to... um, it was I spoke to a psychiatrist and then I spoke to a pharmacist with a speciality in mental health medications and they've actually helped me to come off of some of my medications oh wow yeah so I'm actually taking less medication now than I was and I actually feel so much better actually coming off some of the medications so I'm still on the full dose of the mood stabilizers um, but I've come down on some of the antidepressants um, because at 25 you don't want to be taking I'm like a walking pharmacy I have my mum does my medications <laughs> my mum does my medications to me every week because I can't remember what I take and that sounds awful she, I, uh, my mum's lovely she does everything she can to support me but she, she doses me up um, a, a week's worth of medications like there you go you get a week's worth probably it's probably so I can't you know take too many meds at the same time as well um and I'm just on because you you take the the mental health medication, then you take the medication to protect your stomach, just to, to stop nausea, to stop these um because mine cause stomach spasms. So to stop, you take another one to stop that, and then you take a vitamin because they just make you so unwell that it just flushes you out every day. And it's just it's just mad. It's mental. I'm I'm 25 and I'm on I don't know how many medications. <laughs> It's ridiculous. And all because no one would see me for four years. Yeah, I think that's the issue. I know back five, six years ago, let's say when we were at uni, it was bad. Yeah. Like, I remember multiple times, not just the one times we had dominoes, but multiple times Mm. going into that hospital, you had self-harmed or you weren't taking your meds or you come off them and you went cold turkey oh it was terrible you taking to my see meds. A therapist yeah. and multiple times you just got turned away multiple yeah. I remember you sat crying on the floor and I was sat crying with you because yeah. they told you you wasn't sick enough to get any help I remember now, this that, yeah. was this was this was when Beck I think you self-harmed and you self-harmed quite bad. Was it on yep. your leg, on the top of your, on your thighs, maybe, or your I, calves, or something? I reckon. I think it was everywhere. If I'm, it was literally everywhere. Every, every yeah. scrap of my body that I could, I did. Yeah, I remember, and you'd been seen by the nurse. Like your, uh, your cuts had been checked over, and they said like they didn't need stitches. They mm. wasn't as deep as they were. Maybe you'd done before. Yeah, there were they were just, um, there was lots of them, but they were superficial. I think. Yeah, 
So I remember that. And then I remember we kind of sat in a waiting room because we needed to see... We needed to see a psychiatrist or something. Mm. So you saw the psychiatrist, but then you was told that you wasn't sick enough to get any help. Now, I'd say you was probably... I don't know if you was at your lowest, but that was your lowest that I'd ever seen you. And it absolutely disgusted me that they said you wasn't sick enough to get any help yeah like what do you need to a fucking top you said i think to get help yeah because i think because although i was suicidal i didn't make any attempts on my own life because looking back i generally think i was probably sick enough to be admitted i probably needed to be admitted that day when we was in the hospital and you they were, didn't know whether to section you or not. I was expecting you to get sectioned. I was, and I was well. expecting to make that phone call to your poor mother, bless her, yeah. to tell her that you'd a- got sectioned. Absolutely, I was expecting it. And I don't know how... I, how you did. I genuinely don't know how all these years I've never been, I, I've never been sectioned. I think it's because, maybe more so now because of the pandemic and everything we're going through at the minute... Yeah. They are finally maybe taking mental health seriously, Definitely. especially in young people. Definitely, yeah. Now, I'm not saying that it's it's more it's more important for young people, but probably over the past couple of years, you've just got to think of how many young people have taken the life and Absolutely. how many young people haven't got the help or they've suffered in silence. And that's kind of one topic I kind of wanted to cover and just discuss with you, mm. the stigma of mental health and the NHS. Mm. And I know you work for the NHS yeah. and the NHS is brilliant with yeah. everything they're doing at the moment, but they're not so great when it comes to mental health. They are not, no. Mm. Even now, and we're in what, 2021? We went to uni in 2013. Yeah. This was what, 2014, 2015, yeah, maybe? Yeah, it was, yeah. When I remember going with you um, to the hospital. That's the year that I got diagnosed, 2015. Yeah. Um, I was really lucky. I kind of got counselling um, from the GP pretty much straight away. Um, I got diagnosed 20, I think. Suffered for years before that, as I've already explained. Um, but they were quite good with me. The counselling went through uni, so it wasn't the NHS. I did kind of uni counselling with the wellbeing team and everything, but that really helped. It really helped. Yeah. Um, but, like, I saw the experience that I had with the experience that you had. Now, I don't know if that's because I just had depression. It wasn't mild, but it wasn't clinical. So it wasn't clinically depressed, but it wasn't mild. It was kind of in the middle. Mm. Um, So probably like moderate depression. I was on the sertraline um, and I had anxiety as well. That was quite high and panic attacks and all that jazz. Um, But maybe because you had other mental health Mm -hmm. issues, maybe that's why. But surely then you would need more help than me um i've definitely been turned down a lot because of the borderline personality disorder and um, because it's just a, a much more complex condition to give therapy to um they actually advise giving group therapy rather than single therapy for people with bpd don't really know why and have you done that um I'm actually, have you done that um i did it when i was in Leicester and i've actually just started well i'm a couple of weeks into a um gbt group therapy course at the moment run by the nhs by this new service and they were like oh do you want to do dbc therapy i was like okay do you find it helps like i know there's a lot of stigma around doing therapy and counseling and talking to someone you don't know about all the stupid shit that's going on in your head like oh why talk to a stranger why not talk to your mum or your dad or your friend or your partner but do you find that talking to strangers helps you more than talking to people you know or you're friends with or you're um, related to? Yes. Definitely once I got out of the not talking to any therapist mindset, yeah. that I did find it quite helpful. Um, I think after my diagnosis of personality disorder, I've always had group therapy. That's slightly more difficult because when you're talking you could trigger somebody else um yeah so you start talking about self-harm somebody else is gonna it's gonna be their trigger and they're 
they're going to have a meltdown. Um, and it's also not just one person or two people, depending. It's it's um well at the moment it's it's online, but it it's generally you all sat around a big table and there's ten to twelve of you sat there, like an AA meeting. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, like my name's Rebecca and I have issues with emotions. um and that's that's a different kettle of fish honestly it's taken me a long time to get used to it and I just think okay I think I'm more wary I honestly even though I'm probably about six weeks into this dbt therapy um I still haven't particularly opened up because I'm so worried about triggering the other and that's the issue I think yeah um, I've just finished one-to-one mm. CBT. It focuses, I think, it makes you realise what your triggers are. Yeah, it does. And everyone has different triggers and certain things may not seem a trigger to other people, but they can be. Um, I don't I don't yeah. actually cut myself anymore, but I still, I still harm myself every single day. That was going to be my next question, yeah. if you still self-harm. So I don't cut myself anymore um i think that's okay. greatly helped with the fact that i don't let any sharp objects near me uh if i need to shave my right. legs i get the razor off my mum i shave my legs i go straight downstairs after my my shower and i give it back to her knives are in the kitchen scissors are with my mum there if i accidentally break a mirror or something that goes straight downstairs i do not trust myself because i will okay. always go back to it because that was my crutch for so long but although I'm not cutting myself which I think was probably the most damaging thing because I've damaged nerves I've damaged damaged so many things through through harming myself yeah I still do things like I chew the inside of my mouth so my, my inside of my mouth I've got quite a lot of wounds around my lips and my cheeks um I pull out my hair at the back and I still pinch up myself I also if I'm feeling really anxious I will literally just punch myself um generally in the sides of my stomach so I'm quite often bruised and have lumps there so it's still yes. it's, I, I, I always say it's not as bad as it used to be because it's not I don't see it you're not quite yourself yeah I think it's a big step not to not to be cutting myself like three times a day which at my worst that was what it it, it was yeah um self-harm is still a big part of my coping mechanisms which it really shouldn't be but it at the end of the day is but I I'm trying to find less destructive and less harming ways to do it if that makes sense which is not what I advise you to do do not do that do not do that (laughs) it's a bad coping mechanism Um, but I think because it's been for so since I was so young I just can't I can try it's gonna be hard I suppose it's yeah, it's going to be hard to get out of that. It's a habit. Yeah, definitely. That's what it is. It's a habit. What else do you do to cope? Like, I know that for my coping mechanisms, that um, seeing family and friends go in and trying to distract mm. myself if I'm kind of feel anxious, or but then I get anxious about going out and going places and stuff. And obviously, lockdown, <laughs> I can't really fucking go anywhere. But I, my coping mechanism is writing mm-hmm. um playing computer games so kind of zoning out and playing sims yeah. that's a good one i do that yeah uh, yeah and walks seeing friends mm-hmm. my mom my dad my brother um i think family is a big Definitely. thing when you suffer and like i um didn't really tell them mm-hmm. so i'm quite it's nice to hear a story where you mm-hmm. did tell your family they were quite supportive and I'm not saying mm. that mine weren't it's just I didn't tell them yeah so they couldn't be supportive because they didn't know it took years it took years yeah. my mum had an inkling from from a young age because of what was going on and um I was seeing therapists at 10 and 11 but I refused to talk to them again I would not talk to therapists yeah um I think because I had this idea that uh therapists social workers anyone like that was evil I had nothing to do with them um yeah and I think it also helped that I watched my mum go through quite bad depression with the with the drinking and with the abuse she was facing from my dad um she sunk really low so I knew that she knew how I felt is that kind of a trigger for you like what's your triggers 
I know that mine is like if I have arguments with family members. Um, I know one of my main things that when I went to counselling, it was um, to do with like my mum and dad and my mum and dad splitting up and mm. arguing and everything like that. Kind of like past relationships mm. and stuff. So I know they were my triggers. Do you have set? Do you know your yeah. triggers and how do you cope if them triggers? So, uh, one of my big triggers is men of all kind. Oh, I know. Men. Um, I have, I think, from from my dad, really bad trust issues with men. I even now, as an adult, even at work, I struggle to communicate with men. Um, I struggle to ask them things, and I work in a predominantly male office with so it's really difficult I find men very intimidating and I I just don't like talking to men and it sounds really odd yeah I it instantly brings panic um especially if I'm sat down and they come towards me standing up absolute dread and I can't explain it it's just uh, yeah I can't explain it but just men in general (laughs) are trigger um except the only person who's managed to bypass that is my my current manager at work because he's male but I don't get the same feelings with him and I don't know why and I can never put my finger on why other things that trigger me is um not not people talking about self-harm but if I see if I'm in public and I used I used to get it more when I was working in uh, retail when you see people's scars I I find that really triggering but Seeing like cuts are fine, talking about it fine, but scars—that's what gets me. Yeah, and I, again, I quite—I find my triggers—they're quite specific and they're quite weird. But, but how do you cope? You know, if you see, say, for example, you were mm-hmm. in a coffee shop, and I know you used yeah. to work in a coffee shop, but I know that if, let's say, you were in a coffee shop and someone on the table next to you—they took their jacket off and they had scars all up their arms and that kind of triggered mm. some sort of mental emotion with you how kind of how do you cope with it like what um, are your coping so mechanisms I do a lot of deep breathing i think it's in five out for seven you're supposed to go out for two seconds yes. longer than you breathe in um distraction is a huge huge thing just take them put your earphones in put your music on um and I tend to stare at the ground anywhere don't you know, see me walk I literally quite walk with my head down and I sit with my head down as well so I because I don't like people looking at me <laughs> so I do yeah. that I will literally just find a point and I will focus on it and I'll concentrate on the music or the podcast or anything and I just distract myself and I try my best just not look at it as long as I don't, can't see it, I'm fine. Just lock it from my, from my, from my vision. Some people struggle if they mm. have triggers. Um, and like I said, the NHS doesn't. It's mm. not great. It's it. I don't feel as though we've kind of come anywhere from six years ago to now. And with this pandemic, and I think with the pandemic, demand on the services has increased tenfold. Yeah because people are struggling emotionally maybe they were struggling a little bit before but could cope with it and coronavirus is hit and they can no longer cope with it so although yeah. the services are better it's harder to they need to be consistent if that gp surgery is doing one thing and this gp surgery is doing another that's not fair because there's one in three people mm. that suffer with mental health issues that's not just depression or anxiety no. is it that's bipolar personality disorder psychosis schizophrenia it's the yeah. full shebang and it's it's just mm. heartbreaking that more more and more people are mm. suffering and they don't want to speak to anyone because the nhs don't give a fuck and mm. Like everyone's experience is differently and I've been lucky enough that, that they have helped me when I needed yeah. them to help but I know people that haven't had the help and then they've ended yeah. up in hospital or they've felt like they can't speak to anyone because the NHS don't want to I, help them it, yeah definitely example. feel like if you 
people get brushed off and you get disheartened. You shouldn't have to you push shouldn't. for diagnosis. You shouldn't have to push for medication or therapy. You should go to a doctor and do that stupid fucking mental health testing yep. that they give you. <laughs> How have you felt in the past two weeks? Do you feel lonely? Do you feel upset? Well, yeah, I, fucking I feel like I shit. <laughs> I feel like shit. That's why I've come exactly. to speak to a doctor. That's why I'm sat here taking this stupid fucking <gasps> I, test. I really hate that test. It's the most... But how often? I've... Oh, my God, I have to do it so often. Actually, going back a couple of years, I had to... I When I initially got a job in the NHS, I got it on um, the bank or uh, temporary staff. And yeah. they, made, they made me do this yeah. quiz... And then turned around and said, you can't work, you're not fit for work. And I turned around and went, I have a personality disorder. Of course they're going to be bad answers. Have you in the last two weeks felt like this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have. Do you want me to lie? And I said to her, but I'm at work. I'm at work right now. And you're saying I'm not fit to work. I'm like, and I, yeah. It's, I don't know. There's, if everyone's doing the questionnaires, then fair enough, but. I know it gets scored on a fucking stupid yep. point system, and oh, if you have ten points, you you pass yeah. for therapy. If you have twelve points, you can have some I tablets. Oh, if you pass fifteen points, sorry, you yeah. get infection. I don't know if it's like this for for everyone, but I had a similar sort of thing when I was finally diagnosed with a personality disorder. When they were trying to find out which one it was, it was three sessions, and. It was like hundreds of these questions over like three se- sessions. And then they scored you and you got a score against each personality disorder. I know. Uh, I scored as, uh, I won a lot. I, I scored quite high in about four of them. <laughs> but I, only one's my main diagnosis, thankfully. But I did score, I scored high in four personality disorders. But I, I scored a zero wow. on uh, narcissistic and antisocial. Yeah, I get why they do the tests, but especially if you've got like bipolar or i mean i don't know because i don't suffer with it um but i suppose if you've got that you could be feeling fucking over the moon for two weeks and then it comes to that day that you go into your gp appointment to do this shitty fucking test Mm -hmm. and it asks about the last two weeks so you've got to put that you're feeling absolutely fantastic but that day when you go, you're not. Mm-hmm. I know that guy, that Alex, Dr. Yeah. Alex, who used to be I've on Love Island, that, yeah. he's just been appointed as the uh, mental health something like. secretary yeah, something or something, like that, yeah. something along them lines. And I know that his, his brother mm-hmm. killed himself, didn't he? His young yeah. teenage brother killed himself last year. Um, so, I mean, that's positive news, I suppose, especially mm-hmm. for like the younger generation. But yeah. I put out on my Instagram um, last week okay. for some questions <laughs> off of people if they wanted any advice. And um, I got a couple. I didn't get loads. Um, but I got a couple. And there was one um, one off someone that wanted to remain anonymous. But they basically said that they are post-breakup and that they've hit rock bottom and they have been panicking a lot and having panic attacks. Um, they wanted to know if they, if you had any advice on how to overcome panic attacks and how to kind of get out of that, what's mm. it called, that circle of when you're having one. I know myself that it is quite yeah, it hard to get is. out of it when it's like your first couple and you don't exactly, really know yeah. what's going on. Um, I would definitely say breathing is a big thing. I think when you panic, you automatically start to breathe. Um faster and that just sends your heart rate up yeah um and everything like that so my advice is cold water i know it sounds really odd but splash cold water in your face um if you can it is a bit extreme but literally dunk your head in cold water because it dramatically slows your heart rate down enough for you to be able to say okay now i'm gonna breathe i'm gonna breathe i'm gonna breathe so if you don't want to obviously put your face in water, it's a bit extreme, but literally splash cold water on your face to bring your temperature down. It's like um, your body's response. So you want to bring your heart rate down. And then we have, well, I have this breathing app. What's it called? Breathely. And it talks you yeah, through I've got breathing. So literally, 
I would say, yeah, bring your heart rate down and breathe. So the next one, they've said that they've been struggling lately and they don't want to tell anyone. Does it get easier without telling anyone? And how do you have the confidence to speak so openly about experiences and diagnosis? So I think the first part, it definitely does not get easier if you don't. If you're suffering alone, I think that's the worst the worst thing, feeling in the world. Like you, you sort of feel alone, like that you're alone to deal with these the battle. And it can be really difficult telling people, but definitely tell people you trust so tell if you trust your immediate family if you've got really close friends tell tell them and I think a lot of people would be surprised about how supportive people are and actually about how many people suffer from it because they might turn around and go actually I know exactly how you're feeling yeah and then I think about speaking openly about it I think that I've been suffering for so many years it's been so many years that I slowly got more comfortable about speaking about it However, I think in my everyday life, I do cover up the fact. I still cover it up. A lot of my colleagues know. I think they know I've got depression, anxiety, but they don't know I've got a personality disorder. I keep that very under wrap. Yeah. No, I agree. In silence is the worst thing you can do. Yeah. I think even if you don't feel like you can tell your family or your friends, tell your boss, Mm. tell your lecturer, tell your... Tell a colleague, tell a GP. Exactly, yeah. I would always advise, and none of this is solicited advice. (laughs) This is just kind of from experience. But tell someone. It doesn't have to be your closest friend. It doesn't have to be your mum or your dad or your partner. I mean, it's not great keeping things from your partner or your parents. Mm, No. However, if you don't feel comfortable telling them straight away, at least go see a GP and they will be able to help you as much as possible. Um, And the same as kind of Beck said, I cover things up as well, but I am quite open with my mental health. And I think if it kind of helps one person Mm. and then it's good to be open with it, I think we'll, uh, we'll call it a day now, Beck. Yeah. I think we've talked enough. I think we've been on for a while. Yeah. We've talked enough. Yeah. I think we, we, we went off topic a little, a little bit. bit. Um, but thank You're you. You're welcome. Thank you for sharing your experiences and thank you for being so open and honest. And I'm sure we'll be hearing from you again. <laughs> I'm sure we will. But thank You're you. You're welcome. Okay, so that's the end of episode one. I want to say thanks for listening. I hope that it's not sparked any triggers or any feelings um, for any listeners. I apologise if it has. But I really hope that it's helped you. I hope that it has, even if it's just helped one person, stop suffering silence and to tell somebody how they're feeling or be honest with their emotions and their mental health. I'm going to say bye, and I will speak to you soon for episode two, which will be all about dating and relationships. Speak to you soon, guys.